is a psalm. This was a, a, a song essentially written by King David uh, about 3,000 years ago. And he wrote this probably towards the end of his life. And it serves as a love letter to the Word of God. And just, man, the Word of, the, of God is awesome. It, it's precious. It's valuable. Check out some of these descriptions. It's perfect. It refreshes the soul. Let me get an amen if you've had your soul refreshed by God's Word in the last month, right? Amen. It gives joy to the heart. It gives insight, right? It gives light to the eyes that you're able to see things a little bit more clearly. It's trustworthy, and it makes the simple wise. That one's almost a little offensive, right? If someone's like, hey, you're really wise, you know, talking about Bible knowledge or something. You're like, does that mean normally I would be simple? Probably in my case. But anyway, it's, it's, it's powerful, right? It makes the simple wise. It also says it's more precious than gold. In fact, than fine gold. And it's sweeter than honey from its source. You know, it's the epitome of wealth, of luxury. You know, the Bible talks about heaven being paved, the roads in heaven being paved with gold. And if you have ever wondered, like, is that really what I want my heaven to be like? That's not a physical description. It just means that what is most valuable on earth, which at the time was gold, is, is beneath our feet in heaven. And so gold is so valuable. And he says, you know what? God's word is greater than that. It's more precious to me than gold. More opulent than gold. More luxurious than great honey. Honey was a, a sign of wealth, right? If you had um, a, a good land, then you had things growing on that land, which meant you had bees, which meant you had honey. And so honey is a sign. It's a, 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 a treat for the opulent, a treat for the luxurious, luxurious, uh, the rich, right? And so he says, man, your word is even better than honey. It's clear from this example of David, that we're meant to treasure God's word. We're meant to treasure the word of God. So let me ask you, just food for thought this morning, what would be different in your life if the attitude described here in this psalm is how you felt about the word of God? If you woke up and you're like, I really do treasure God's word more than the most valuable things in my life, what might be different? Maybe the answer is nothing, but maybe there's quite a few things that would be different if you were to truly treasure the words and the law of God. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful to be able to talk about your word. I love your word. Your word has rocked my world, turned it upside down, continues to challenge me, comfort me, bring me security, and then push me into places of discomfort. God, I'm grateful for your word that we can have truth, that we can have something that's valuable. God, even when, when all else might fail or, or uh, fade in beauty or in worth, God, your word stands firm forever. God, I pray that today we can all grow in our, our heart towards your word, that we can treasure your word even more this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is James Rosenquist, together with my wife, Elena. We lead the church here, and uh, I'm filling in today. Uh, Dave Tharp was supposed to preach today, and uh, he's usually filling in for me. He calls himself the pitch hitter, coming in for filling in for me. So today I can say I'm, I'm pitch hitting for Dave and subbing in for him, but he uh, has covid and his family now isn't feeling well, please pray for them. They're not, they're definitely, you know, some people get hit differently with COVID. They're getting hit kind of hard with COVID as a family. So be praying for the Tharp family. But uh, we found out on Friday that he's not going to be able to preach. And so this morning, I kind of just get to share a quiet time with you. Something that's been on my heart. Some, something that's just been inspiring to me. And my prayer has been, I, hope, I sure hope it's inspiring to you. But I'm going to walk away encouraged because I'm looking at God's word. Amen. <laughs> Um, so we are continuing our series on treasuring God, and today is all about treasuring the Word. And if you're looking for the, the, the slides, there are none. We're just going to look at the, the Bible today. If you don't have one, there might be one under the seat in front of you or to your neighbor's seat or just 
look on with someone else or on your phone, fill in the blank. But uh, today we're talking about treasuring God's word. Continuing our series, we've talked about treasuring creation, treasuring the shepherd, treasuring vulnerability. Today we're talking about treasuring the word of God. But there's something interesting in this passage, right? This is kind of the quintessential word of God passage. This is great. We should love the word of God. It's so valuable. But what's being described in in this passage isn't the Bible as we know it, because it's being written as we're talking But it actually says the law of God, the law of the Lord, the rules of God, the precepts of God are to be valued. And I don't know if you're like me, but the laws and the rules are what I like least about the Bible. (laughs) So how is that supposed to be something that I treasure, that I appreciate? Yes, I love the stories. I get fired up about different things or different applications. But the law of the Lord, okay, I I tolerate those because I like the rest. (laughs) But this says, man, I, I love and I treasure the law of the Lord, which is so interesting. The law of God is something that I treasure. I grew up uh, in a religious home and, and, and really was grateful for the faith that was instilled upon me, but I also knew all the rules and all the things that I couldn't do because I grew up in a Christian home, right? And I, it made me resent Christianity for a period of time because I was like, I, I don't like these rules. A lot of people don't like the Bible because they see it as what? A book of rules, right? In fact, the, the cheesy, you know, B-I-B-L-E, Uh, saying is basic instructions before leaving earth. If you've ever heard that, B-I-B-L-E. And it's like, okay, that's what this is, right? It's instructions. It's what to do and what not to do. And then we can kind of feel like, well, as as long as I feel okay and feel like a good person, do I really need the instructions? Or like, man, I don't want to take this too seriously because there's a lot of instructions. And so we can kind of get weird when it comes to the law of God. The law of God growing up was not as sweet as honey. It was about as sweet as Tabasco sauce to me. But we see something powerful, and, and we kind of got to dive into why is David proclaiming this, this love song to God's word and to the law? Turn with me over to James chapter 1. I'm going to be in a few passages today. James is a good book, good name. James 1, it was really cool this summer, we, um, as a... Um, city ministry, we spent some time just looking at the book of James, and we would meet up in the middle of Oakland, and we'd read a little section of scripture, and we'd read it three times in different translations, and we'd just say, okay, what stands out to you? And we got some really cool, unique discussions going. It was really fun, and we'll continue doing that in the fall. But uh, James chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 22. It says this, don't merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Great passage. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this passage, but I like the beginning. It says, don't just hear the word and so deceive yourselves, right? And so how does hearing the word leave you to be self-deceived? Well, you're like, okay, I go to church. I know the message. I know the stories. I know the stuff. I've heard it. It says hearing it actually might be worse than not hearing it because hearing it gives a false sense of security because you're not actually putting it into practice. And it says, my favorite sentence in the whole Bible, do what it says. I like in the King James Version, it says, be ye doers of the word not just hearers. And I don't always like the King James Version, but I like that one. I like the idea of being a a doer, 
right? Church sometimes gets the reputation of a lot of people just sitting around and waiting. But we're meant to be doers, to go and do the word of God and to apply it and put it into practice. But here in verse 25, it says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, they'll be blessed in what they do. And I always found that to be kind of... um, uh, what's the word? Oxymoronic, right? The basically opposites, right? A law that gives freedom. Law and freedom don't, don't tend to go together, right? I want to be free to what I, whatever I want to do, and the law gets in the way of that. I want to do this. I want to live this way. I want to be free to do whatever. The law and the rules limit that. But we treasure God's laws because in reality, they actually offer us true freedom, right? I, I heard this described as, as this kind of animalistic freedom, which is I'm free to do whatever I want. Think of an animal just follows its passions. And that's sometimes our American idea of freedom. I'm free to do whatever it is that I want. But an animal doesn't possess the freedom to not do what what he wants or what it wants, right? There's a freedom to make logical decisions. There's a freedom to say, you know what, this isn't best. There's a freedom to resist what I would naturally do and do something instead. And only humans have that ability to enact that self-control based on something higher than just survival skills, right? And so we have a freedom found in the law to not be animalistic, to not just do what we want to do because that's what we want to do, but to live for something higher. And there's a freedom that comes in that, a freedom in the law. We treasure God's laws because they offer us freedom, freedom from the perpetual and enslaving cycle of self-indulgence, freedom from committing generational sin. How cool is it that because of God's laws, we can break a pattern, right? pattern of our our grandparents or our parents or okay this is how I was treated this is how I was raised but I get to break that power not because oh I'm so upset or or, you know resentful towards my parents but because I'm in Christ and I can be something new and break a pattern that might have not been healthy in my life we get the freedom from the chaos which is our life when we're not resting in God's hands doesn't mean that our life is not chaotic but we get the freedom without uh, the freedom of what our life would be without God or freedom from the chaos of what our life would be without God Rules and, and order can be a good thing. If you've ever played a pickup game of football, everyone gathers around, and the first thing you do is, what are the rules? Because if you're on a few different pages about what the rules are, someone could get, get pretty hurt. If you're thinking it's touch and it's tackle, you're going to really wish that there were some perfect laws that give freedom in that scenario, right? You could really get hurt. Laws and, and rules help you enjoy things the right way. I found this out uh, this, this past week, about a, a week I guess a week and a half ago. As I shared last week, Elena had COVID uh, almost two weeks ago now. And so um, our house was under quarantine and Elena was in her, you know, I think I showed a picture uh, last week, but she was in her, I was going to say cell, but that doesn't sound right. But she was, she was quarantined with some plastic wrap in her bubble. And um, me and the kids kind of had free range of the house, right? Freedom, we can do whatever we want, um, which is a little dangerous, right? And, and I knew... And I'm also in survival mode. If it, you know, I'm like, okay, I just got to keep them, keep them alive. I got to get food to Elena through our little door system, right? And um, she did have, I'm really making this sound like she was in jail. She did have some outdoor time that we, we allowed. So we, um, me and the kids left so that she could go outside without, you know, touching or contaminating things. And I kind of cleaned up a path for her to, to see the house is not as bad on her way out. Does that make sense? Upstairs, I didn't bother with. I was going to get to it all, right? I was going to get around to it, right? And so I cleared up this path, and, and later she told me, like, oh, yeah, I did a little 
little tour of the house, <laughs> and I saw the state of the house, and I felt like the beast from Beauty and the Beast, like, don't go in the West Wing, you know, <laughs> don't look, but um, we, we need kind of the, the law, the perfect law that gives freedom in our household. We were out of cups and out of plates, and it was, it was rough. We need some structure, and I'm not saying Elaine is the only source of structure in our home, but uh, we, we weren't in a sense of normalcy, and so the structure was gone. And so when we have the perfect law, it offers us the freedom to enjoy life the way that we're meant to in Christ. And so we can treasure the law of God because we know what it's going to bring about in our lives. So how do we actively try to keep growing and treasuring God? So number one is we got to see that the laws are good. We kind of just talked about this. If we really want to grow in our treasuring of the word, number one, we got to see that the laws are good, that they're crucial for our livelihood. This is really important, and, and a lot of us have seen this. If you've been around a, as a Christian for a period of time, you know it's not easy, but you're still here because you see that it's worth it, that this way of life is better than what your life would be without Christ. It might be harder at times, but it sure is better than the life that you were living before. But that's not always the case. That would be great, but that would be kind of if Christianity was just self-help. You should be a Christian because it just makes your life better here and now. But there are some things that God calls us to in his laws that will not seem worth it until we get to heaven. And things that we have to hold to. And I won't step too much on Anthony's toes. He's preaching on heaven next week and on eternity. So, but there's things we have to do that aren't going to logically make sense to us. And what tends to happen is we, we dismiss that part of scripture. Say that, that's not logical. That doesn't make sense. So maybe this didn't mean what it, what it says it means. And I'm going to you know, go find a YouTube channel to... to basically have this, hear what I want to hear, right, and have the scriptures mean less to me, right? I'm going to find what my itching ears want to hear. And uh, that's not what we're meant to do. Instead, we can treasure the law of God. So number one is seeing that the laws are good, but when we don't, we can't see if they're good or not. The thing that helps us treasure God's laws is to trust the lawmaker. If we trust who God is and recognize that the Bible isn't just a book of rules, but it's a, a, a magnifying glass into the heart of God, then even when the laws don't make sense, even when we feel more restricted than freed by the law of God, we trust God and his character. We trust the lawmaker. There have been many times in my life where I've pushed away the laws of God, questioned his goodness um, or my purpose in life. And what brings me back every time is seeing the heart of God towards me and his will for my life. When I doubt God's goodness, I need to go back and look at who God is as a whole and his character shown in the word of God so that I can trust him and hold to his truth. So this morning, our call is simply to treasure the word of God. And I would love to get into practicals, like here's what you can do, here's how to get in your Bible. But if you've been around, we kind of did that in January and February a little bit. We talked a lot about getting into our Bibles. Instead of talking about how to get into our Bibles, we're going to get into our Bible together today. So turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm just going to share a little bit of a story that I needed this week and that, again, I hope inspires you. So this is an effort to treasure God's law. It's kind of almost two lessons, right? The, the overarching lesson is treasure the Word of God. But here I'm going to show you what helped me treasure the Word of God this week, right? So there's almost a, a totally different practical that comes out of this part, looking at the story of David and Goliath. Sound good? Yeah. Good, because that's what we're doing. Um, amen. <laughs> I've always wondered if I say, sound good, and everyone's like, nah. 
what I would do. Like, sorry. Sorry about it, guys. This is where we're going. But um, we're going to talk about the story of David and Goliath. Anyone ever hear of that story before? It's, it's very familiar, right? We know it. In fact, it's so common that in our modern-day vernacular, we have, even outside of Christianity or outside of religion, we have the classic David versus Goliath story. I remember one time I uh, heard a sermon on Super Bowl Sunday preached about the Giants versus the Patriots. And it was the giant Goliath versus David the Patriot for his, his country. And it was, I was like, okay, wow, we're really stretching this metaphor here. And I, I do think that the Giants won that one. Shout out to... Uh, <laughs> yes, we do owe you for that one. Thank you. Thank you, Esteban. He didn't play for the Giants. He's just a fan, just for the record, for anyone that might have been confused there. But um, so we know the story of David and Goliath. Sometimes it's really good, and the practical for today, spoiler alert, is to just go back and read a very common story in the Bible and look what it reveals about God's character and his heart towards you. Right? Go back. Sometimes when I'm reading through the Bible and it's a story I really know, I kind of skip over it because I'm like, okay, I've read this two or three hundred times. But uh, I needed this story this week. And before we start reading, think about what are some Goliaths in your life? What are some things? A Goliath would just be something that's some sort of obstacle. It could be self-inflicted. It could be coming from another source. It could be something that's just challenging, something that's standing against what God wants for your life, some sort of, of Goliath. Because that's what Goliath was to the Israelites. They, they needed to, to conquer uh, the Philistines, and Goliath was saying, hey, you got to go through me. And so he was in the way. And uh, we'll read about this in a second. So the first thing is figure out what are some Goliaths in your life? And maybe just one. What's something that's standing in the way of you following God's will for your life? Again, self-inflicted from an external source, whatever it is. What is that thing? And then the second thing to establish is what is the line, the battle line, that, that you, that's basically stopping you? So what I'll explain is, the Israelites, they would gather to fight Goliath, and they would run up to the battle line. They would literally charge and stop at this line, and they would wait to see, okay, is one of us today going to fight Goliath? They'd look left and right, not me, not, you know, and they would just stand there, and they'd stand at this line every day for 40 days, and I think some of us know what it is that we need to do. Most of the time in a sermon or in our life, it's not a matter of not knowing what we need to do. It's just making that small decision, that, that 20 seconds of insane courage to step over the battle line and to face something that's challenging. And I think with COVID, with different things in our life, we've gotten really comfortable with whatever that line might be. And we know something needs to be different and we just stand at the line. And today my hope is that our trust in God can increase, our trust in the lawmaker can increase so that whatever that line is in our individual lives, we can step over together, amen? So what is the line? For me, I'll share something that's been overwhelming is uh, the college and the campus ministry starting up again this fall. As you guys know, about 10 years ago, Elaine and I moved here to lead the campus ministry. We love the campus ministry. That's our bread and butter. But we're always used to having some sort of intern or somebody with us. And this past week, I couldn't figure out what I was feeling, but I'm feeling really lonely in this because my, you guys know, Sam graduated and moved, Cam moved, Esteban moved, Harry moved. I'm like, those are my guys, and they're, they're here. And I'm so grateful for the guys that we have and the crew that we have. But it, it's, it's different than what it's been before with having kind of an intern or somebody to, to go. And I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm also, I feel really out of place when I'm on campus. I, I used to feel cool, like, oh, man, I'm, I kind of look like a grad student. Then I kind of look like a professor. 
And then, you know, are you a dad? Are you checking someone in? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it's not true. But I can just feel a little bit out of place. And, um, and for me, what I, I just want to sit back. I can find plenty of busy work and office work versus getting on campus and going and talking to, to new faces that I haven't seen and sharing my faith. That's, that's what I'm called to do, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> I would rather just meet with people I know, work on sermons, this is nice, this is comfortable, but I know that is what God is calling me to at this stage. And I also know God has opened the door. There's, there's people from all over the world all crammed into Oakland or crammed into Slippery Rock or crammed into Morgantown, West Virginia. And there's a way to reach the whole world by getting on campus and being there. And we've seen that happen with Harry being sent out, with Esteban being sent out to Argentina. It happens, but it just takes that faith to get out there and do it, that faith to build those new relationships. So that's what I'm facing. And I'm overwhelmed by all the things that I'm behind on that I need to do, the sense of loneliness. And I'm so grateful for the church and so grateful for the campus ministry right now, but I'm overwhelmed. So that's my Goliath. That's my battle line that I'm working on, just so that you guys are aware. So let's read together, starting in verse 4. We'll go quickly here. It says, The champion called Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Pretty tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So this is just setting the stage that Goliath is a strong, powerful uh, foe against the Israelites. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll, uh, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This threat is laid bare. It's lingering for 40 days. The Israelites are stuck in a rut. I feel like that's, that's uh, relatable, right? You just get the sense they're dismayed, they're overwhelmed. Things are not going the way that they want it to go. And every day they're like, okay, who's going to take, who's going to take this guy? Did someone grow, you know, an extra three feet overnight? No, nobody? Okay. We're just here at the battle lines over and over again. Let's skip down to verse 20. It says, early in the morning, David left his flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to the battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. I think it's remarkable that every day they are singing the battle cry on their way to the battle lines. And I think sometimes the story of David and Goliath is supposed to be, okay, we just got to have a little more courage. Let's just get amped up. Let's just go. Whatever you need to do, if you need to get up earlier and have a great quiet time, just get amped up, have a little more courage. But these guys were getting amped up. And they got to the same battle line, and they, they didn't cross over. 
They weren't willing to do what they needed to do, to make the move they needed to do to face the giant that was opposing them. So it's not about hype. This sermon isn't even about having more courage, but there's something else that's missing. And David has a different attitude, right? He's running to the battle line, and all these guys every day, they run from the battle line. So there's something interesting going on here. Let's read a little bit more in in, uh, verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Amen? Uh, David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David enters, and he has a different focus. It's unique. Something I noticed for the first time when I I was looking at this passage is that God is mentioned for the first time here by David. Nowhere else in all of chapter 17 is God brought into the picture. But David brings God up. His focus is on God. He goes, this guy's talking about my God. That ain't okay. I don't stand for that. Are you guys hearing the same thing I'm hearing? He's talking about our God. What in the world? And and he has a different focus. You get the sense that everyone on the line is, what's going to happen to me if I step out there? David is, what's going to happen to God if I don't? What's going to happen to God's reputation? What's going to happen to our people if I don't cross over this line? Something needs to happen. And David has a different focus. For the first time in this story, he brings God into it. And then he faces some grief for that. Let's check out verse 28. It says, When Eliab, David's oldest brother, classic oldest brother here, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You've come down to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can, can I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter to the men, and the men answered him as before. This is small. This is a small thing in there, but it's a classic brother situation. Like, you're just here for attention. Go back to the sheep, right? We're, let let the, the soldiers deal with this. And David's like, deal with this? You guys are, I don't know if you're dealing with anything. But there's this moment, and David hears the criticism, and it says, he turned away. And if there's ever like a Bible verse that's like, turn away from the haters, <laughs> this is it, right? There's this, there's this idea of someone is against David and his desire and what he wants to do for God. And they're bringing up these earthly things and questioning his motivation. And David just doesn't entertain it. He turns away. And maybe there are people in your life that the things that you know you need to do for God, there are people that stand opposed to that. But if you're like me, the voice of the hater that I need to turn away from is internal, <laughs> And there are things that I bring up, okay, well, I have the wrong motivation here. I'm not able to do this. I don't have this going on. I'm too busy. I'm this, I'm this. And all these excuses come out, and it's not externally, it's internally. And like David, I have to turn away from that and say, that's not true. Can I even speak? You know, let me listen to the Holy Spirit instead of so much to my own insecurities and challenges. And I love this call that David exemplifies. Just turn away, turn down the volume on the haters, especially the internal voice of the hater. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. You guys still with me? Yeah. All right. Verse 32 says, when David, so David says, I, I volunteer. Um, when David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man 
and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off his sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it, it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and the tigers. Oh my, this circumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So David says, don't worry about it. I got it. And Saul's like, you, this is not going to go well. And David says, let me tell you a little bit of my history here. And, and by the way, Saul has one way that he thinks this fight's going to go down. And later he's going to try to put his armor on David, which means that in Saul's mind, the only way to face Goliath was hand-to-hand combat. And sometimes we can be like Saul, and there's only one way to deal with whatever it is we're trying to deal with. And we want to deal with it the way that we're used to dealing with it. And someone else might come along with a different perspective, and it's easy to be dismissive and say, no, no, you need the armor. This is the way we always do it. This is what we need. But there's something powerful about maybe a different way of doing things. And that's what uh, David represents here, a different way of doing things, which we'll talk about in a second. But David says, I can take on Goliath, not because I've got what's going on, not because I got it, not because I, I work out, and not because of this, but because I've got God on my side. And he's delivered me before he will deliver me again. And I need this reminder. I've been reflecting on the different lions. Uh, are lions in there? Yeah, lions and bears. What did I add? Tigers. tigers. There's no tigers. Okay, sorry. That was my uh, own translation there. But the, the different lions and the bears in my life. And if you're taking notes, take a second to, to think, what has God delivered me from before? How has God shown his strength in my life before? Because that's going to help us face what we need to face now. What has God done in my past? When we see that clearly, we're prepared for what God is trying to do through us and for us in our present. This passage is not about greater courage. It's about greater trust. So when we trust God, we will courageously make moves for God. When we trust him, we're willing to do it. If it's just about courage, courage comes and goes. But our trust can be steadfast and help us to be courageous in the things that we need to do. God has been preparing us. I also think it's remarkable that David sees himself in that story as being rescued by the bear and by the lion. Right? He says, okay, whatever that fight was, I would love to see a video of it. Just taking out, you know, the the lion's legs and doing a little sweep and figuring out a way to, to take the, the lamb out of the lion's mouth. And there's something epic about that. I would just watch a whole movie about that showdown. And then he does it again with the bear, and that's, that's pretty epic as well. We've been watching uh, Alone, and hey, bear, you know, everyone's afraid of the, the bears out there. And they're pretty, you see a bear on camera when you're by yourself, it's pretty scary, and everyone runs away. But here's David running towards the bear. It's pretty cool. But his perspective on that is not, hey, I took out a bear, I took out a lion. I got this too. He goes, God rescued me from the bear. God rescued me from the lion. He's going to rescue me again. And there's a posture. When we see ourselves as having been rescued, all our excuses kind of start to fade. When we recognize, man, God has rescued me. My life right now is a gift. Whatever claims I think I have, whatever I think I'm entitled to, I, I lose those claims. I lose those titles because I am walking as someone who's been rescued. When we see ourselves as rescued from God, it gives us greater perspective. 
And lastly, let's read about the battle here in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine uh, army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And then they have victory over the Philistine army after this. This battle here is not a fair fight, but not in the way we might think. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell did a kind of a famous TED talk about this concept recently and then wrote a book about it. But the classic David and Goliath story is not really about an underdog. David is not the underdog in this story. Even without God in the picture, David actually has a, a tactical advantage. A lot of people think that um, basically that, that Goliath would have been a giant and would have had different challenges. Mostly he would have been losing his sight and probably had some numbness in his hands, which is why someone else has to carry his shield. And he was a great warrior, but he would have been losing, uh, because of his great height, kind of uh, picture Andre the Giant, right? Um, suffering some different challenges later in his life. And so a lot of scholars think that Goliath was at a disadvantage, especially from far away. In fact, they think he's losing his sight because earlier Goliath says, who, who are you that you come at me with sticks? And he kind of looked at, you know, David didn't have a stick in his hand. So there's something visually maybe going on with Goliath. He's, he's tactically at a, a disadvantage, and he's far away. If he's close, again, if you've seen uh, Princess Bride, close combat, Andre the Giant, he, he, he's got it going on. Goliath has got it going on. But David has a, a tactical advantage because he's far away. And a sling doesn't sound like much, but a, a sling with a stone in it is about the same as a, a 45 caliber, right? It, it's basically like having a gun and bringing it to a sword fight. And so you look at this, and David is actually the one having the advantage. But even if you take away all of those things, David has the ultimate advantage because what's his weapon? God. And so David, even the world recognizes what I'm trying to say, that, that David isn't the underdog in this story. But you put God in the picture, and David is clearly not an underdog. Poor Goliath. This is the worst underdog story ever. He started off as the underdog, and he ended up under the dog. I don't know how that works, but he, he died. It didn't work out for him. But with God, we're not the underdogs. We're not, we're not beneath, but we, we have the tactical advantage in whatever situation that we're in because we have God on our side. And when we're aware of that, it should show in our posture and in our moves and, how, and what we do. But when we lose sight of that, we start second guessing and we stand at that battle line and we start quivering and we run away from whatever it is that God is calling us to. You know, this part brings me back to God's character and will bring us into communion this morning. This story here that God uses what might seem like a weakness, and it's actually the tactical advantage with God. Our weaknesses, because of the blood of Jesus, our weaknesses and our failures and our most intense uh, liabilities become assets 
and strengths because of what Jesus has done in our life. Think about any powerful testimony you've ever heard. How does it go? This was my life without God. This is how bad things were. And, and the, kind of the worse things were, the more amazed we are at what God has done in their life. That our worst things, our weaknesses, become great strengths in God's kingdom. And this is what God specializes in. To, to lead into communion, let's look over in 2 Corinthians 12. We'll close out with this passage. Because of Jesus, our liabilities become assets. Because of Jesus, our weaknesses become strengths. Our greatest failures are not counted against us because of the cross. And we see God favor what looks like the weak thing over and over and over again all throughout the Bible story. And bringing it back to the lawmaker, that's who God is. That even when we fail, even when we have challenges and difficulties, God is with us and he takes our weakness and turns it into strength. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's not about having it all together, but it's about turning our weaknesses over to God and recognizing that even in my weakness, even in my difficulties, even in my failures, I turn to God and I can trust him, trust the lawmaker, and he is going to work in my life. You know, this passage and the call for us today, the call for me as I think about this in my quiet time, is I've got to trust God. Lean on God like never before this year as I go into the semester. That's what I need to do, and that's what our call is today, to trust God more and to allow that trust to bubble over, to boil over, whatever, into us making moves for God. Whatever it is, wherever that line is, think about this week. If, I were to, if you're to step over that line, what would it look like? If you were to trust God enough to just make one move, one move toward him, one move uh, with him, but let's trust God and, and, and uh, take action as well. David and Goliath is not a story simply about courage, but trust. Trusting enough to courageously make a move like God made a move for us in sacrificing his son. I'll share a few practicals in a moment after communion, but let's take a, some time to pray and uh, take the, the bread and the juice as well. Father God, I'm so grateful for your gift of the cross. So grateful that your power is made perfect in weakness. Not in more power, not in having this advantage or that advantage, but God, in our weakness, God, you give us the advantage in Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for his blood being shed, his body being broken so that we may have new life. God, we're not deserving of it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it on the front end or the back end, yet you love us enough to die for us, and I pray that we can live in response to that. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for resurrecting that we can celebrate that too today as we take communion. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Before uh, Mohinder comes up to uh, share for contribution, I want to close with a few practicals for us tying into this, this lesson. You know, the first is... Uh, to identify a battle line that, that has been drawn out that you need to cross over, whatever that might be, simply identify it. Second challenge is to think about some lions and bears in your past that God has, has rescued you from. 
and, and share that with somebody. So identify it and then share it. Share what God has done. What a great way to encourage someone. And then lastly, what's just one move you can make this week to tr courageously trust God more? And then do it. Identify it, share it, do it. It's kind of the call for us in looking at the story of David and Goliath. And then to close out with treasuring God's word, do this on your own. Look at a story in the Bible that you know, that's familiar, that maybe sometimes goes in one ear and out the other. And really chew on what great insights does the Holy Spirit have for me here. Make a decision. Don't, don't wait to dive into God's word. Don't wait to get serious about your faith. It's too important. Nothing's going to change as time goes on except our heart gets more and more hardened. So choose today to get close to God, to dive into God's word. Read a story you already know. Uh, gain some insights from it. And let this be true for all of us that the decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. Amen.